it's interesting that you mentioned gardening because the last time I spoke to you, which was way before uh, COVID, was uh, you mentioned gardening to me. That, that that was something that kept you busy. So how has that helped you kind of deal with the past two years then? Oh, my God. Gardening has been such a healing thing, man. And I always had an interest in it, but I didn't know anything about it. And I have very little patience. And I definitely have a lot of control issues. And that's been probably one of the best things about gardening is it forces you to learn patience and it forces you to stop being so controlling because if you're too tentative to the garden, you end up hurting it and killing it like over spraying or over fertilizing or over watering and just fiddling with things and being too in control. Um, it teaches you, you will kill it. Also having to be really patient. So if you see something go into dormancy or it doesn't look very good, and you try and go in and save it and play God in with ego, right? Mm. Um, you also end up ruining something that's just resting. So being patient and allowing things to evolve. And then also it's quiet out there. And the quiet has been really good for me. It's like a kind of like an act of Zen. Same thing with swimming. Even mm -hmm. though you can hear the water, somehow it shuts off my mind from, uh, things that, are, that I think are important or taking myself too serious or worrying about. And it will still that it will be kind of a little bit of an act of Zen. So it's been an, an amazing thing for me. I totally understand why now oh, it's common for women as they get older, uh, whether they have children and then their children go off to college or not. Either way, as women get older, there's something nurturing in us where the garden is a natural mm -hmm. place for us to be. And it's very calming and healing for us. And also, I remember, like, when I went on my first tour, uh, it was Romania uh, after pandemic for so long. And I remembered kneeling in, in the garden and I actually started crying and saying thank you to the garden and saying how much I'd miss it and how much it helped me and healed me. And, uh, and it doesn't even look like the same yard. I mean, it's a completely different property. You know, because it's like, you know, I'm an addict. So everything I do has got to be over the top, whether it's good stuff or bad stuff. Right. So it's literally a mother freaking forest out there, man. And but I did. I mean, I genuinely cried on my knees and I was playing war in my mind on my phone because I'd listened to it a lot um, after Rob had made it. Mm -hmm. And uh, a butterfly, a big one, came and landed on my hand while I was holding my phone that had never happened before. And it sat with me for two whole songs, Sugar Shack and one other song I can't remember. And I just remember tripping on that and going, is this the garden's way of saying to me, look, it's okay. You don't have us. We have you and you're going to be fine. You know, because I was scared to go back out. I was like, God, do I remember how to do this? Am I going to let my band down? Am I going to let my crew down? Am I, I'm, I'm off of band of psychotics for the first time in 18 years. Am I going to be able to handle it mentally? You know, so I had a lot of fear. Sure. And that butterfly just kicking it with me like that. I was like, I, I felt like that was very spiritual. Or maybe I just wanted to believe that that was spiritual. Either way, it doesn't matter. It, Either it way, it sounds feel, like a beautiful moment. Yeah, it was a beautiful moment. I cried a lot of tears of gratitude for that. Yeah. Cool. Well, what, what I find interesting in what you mentioned now, and you went to, uh, through some personal changes, as you mentioned as well, but um, 
One of the things I heard from a lot of artists when the, when they talk about this pandemic and being on hold for for two years is that they kind of had to reflect on who they really are outside of music to focus on the person who they they are. Let's say if if music would have fallen away for for some reason, is that something that happened to you where you could see yourself uh, or you, the individual that you are without Beth Hart, the singer? Yeah, I saw that I had a lot of shit I had to change. I saw that I had some real things that I was being in denial about, um, you know, so wrapped up in work, go, 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 go. Right. So no, no more work like that. Yes. Writing, recording. I could do that via uh, zoom. Uh, I could do writing downstairs in my room, um, gardening. I could do things like that, but it's nothing like the militant focus of touring, which mm -hmm. is totally militant, you know, discipline schedule, And there's things you got to focus on. It's not like my voice is an instrument, whereas if it breaks, I can have someone replace it or fix it. If I fuck up my throat, it's canceling shows. So it's very militant. And that's good for someone like me to have to be very focused and disciplined. And that was gone. So suddenly, you know, I'm smoking shitloads of cigarettes. I made an idiot move to bring my mother into the house, you know, which was a bad, bad move. And here I was, you know, trying to be St. Teresa. My ego was so fucking huge that I needed to play St. Teresa by mm. trying to deal with that shit. And I could just see like I'd been with the same psychiatrist for a long time who basically had brainwashed me into believing I was much sicker than what I am. And he had me on shitloads of medication that I should not have been on as a way to kind of perpetuate me giving him more money. And seen him three times a week. Whereas my trauma specialist, I, I'll see him once a week or I won't see him for three, four months. And he never pressures me. He's like, you mm -hmm. go at your pace of what you can handle. And my, my trauma specialist, there's no drugs involved. You know, the only thing he pushes for me to do is to do uh, uh, psychedelic mushrooms. Mm -hmm. He says they're really good for chronic PTSD. And they're really good for um, people with borderline personality disorder which doesn't need medicine like, like psychotropic medication. Right. Sure. Whereas the other guy did. So there was a lot of things, a lot of narcissism that I was attracted to strays trying to get people who can't really love. They're not evil, but they're people that can't really love and me trying to hold on to them and get them to love and respect me. And that's, that's me being sick. And believing I deserve that kind of abuse so I can mm. stay in a state of feeling sorry for myself. So there were a lot of things I saw. I was being very irresponsible and very like a, a state of arrested development, like a teenager. Mm. And I needed to grow up a little bit. I needed to do that and, and become someone that can take care of myself and take responsibility for myself. So in that way, pandemic was fucking amazing. For me to have to have to make those changes, you know, um, well, and then I saw, you know, how much I rely on the applause mm -hmm. as a way to make me feel valued. And that's bullshit. And I'm like, you can't rely on that to make you have a sense of value. Come on, man. Because being an artist is not what you are. It's what you do. Right. And so really what you are, you don't like. So you're wrapping up all your identity in that. And that's not cool. So things like that. But it's, yeah. it's good to hear that you kind of figured a way to, to get out of that in, in a very natural way, in a, as you mentioned, by, by trying more, um, more natural uh, 
treatment methods and more uh, instead of just pumping yourself full of uh, designer drugs and then kind of uh, uh, numbing the feelings. It, it feels exactly. like exactly. Yeah, it feels like you you find a find a, a better you you have found a better way to deal with uh, some of those things at least for now. So that's that's great to hear. Yeah, yeah, it was good. The last tour though was a real tour. So when I say a real tour, I mean in length. Mm. And it was uh, about uh, about six weeks. And and that was very uh, wonderful, but also very trying. And it scared me because I saw that I came out of the gate like a thoroughbred. And, and mm -hmm. I've been trained to not do that. So you, you come out of the gate, chill, and then you build up to it right d throughout the show. And that's how you take care of your throat and your body. And I wasn't doing that. I was kind of going back to more when I was younger mm -hmm. and I didn't work as much. And so I thick fricked up my throat halfway through the tour. I had to cancel two shows, which is so irresponsible. Um, so shit like that. It was like that was humbling, too. And just learning how to, to do it again without, like you said, you know, taking those drugs that would numb all my shit and having to like, you know, and then when you shroom, It does the opposite. It brings up all your shit and makes you really face your shit, right? So, which is a benefit, but it's fucking traumatic too. It's like, holy sure. fuck, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Well, I find it very interesting what you mentioned about your voice because you mentioned kind of uh, rediscovering how your voice works and having to do it being challenged and... In in a weird sort of segue to to the album, then uh, dissecting Robert Plant's voice and kind of figuring out how he did things and and how your voice fits within uh, those songs. What did you discover about your own voice and and how you like to sing? Or what? Well, I knew going in that he had a huge range, a massive range. Mm -hmm. But what was in my benefit was that he also listened to a lot of blues as a kid, so. And I could hear that. Mm. Another thing that was in my benefit is I could tell that Paige had a huge love for experimental, but he had a huge love for classical European composers. I could mm. hear it. You can hear it in Cashmere. You can hear it in a lot of songs. You can hear it in the Rain Song. You hear it. So he had his blues influence too, but he definitely had somebody, I don't know if it was a grandmother or a mother, somebody was growing up that was playing classical music because mm. he has a vocabulary for that. And I was a massive addict of classical music first of any genre as a child. So it was like those two things really worked for me. But what worked against me, and whether this is real or brainwashed, it doesn't matter. This is my thinking, was A, I was a woman doing a total man's world, especially then, like women didn't belong in hard rock. It was all male dominant. And then I'm dealing with total hollowed ground. I mean, mm. Zeppelin is hollowed sure. ground. So that was very tricky. It's like, all right, I got to learn exactly what he did verbatim. And then I've got to try and find a way to make it my own without being disrespectful to the way it was done and to a huge massive fans of Zeppelin. And the only way I could figure out how to a little bit make it my own carefully was if I had to write that song, who and what would it be written about? Mm -hmm. That was the only way. And I was so thankful that I had done already three cover records with Chobata Masa, 
we didn't write any of that stuff. Those were all covers of other artists. And I had to approach those songs as well. Because there were a lot more songs I did of Zeppelin during that year of recording on that record. The mm-hmm. record, you know, that we've now turned in, the tribute, uh, that didn't make it to the record because I wasn't able to bring it home. It wasn't right. good enough. The, the band and the, the, the orchestra and the arrangement was phenomenal, but I couldn't bring it home. And I, I'm just so thankful for being older and having those other experiences with Joe. So that when the producer let me know that instead of me taking it personal, I could totally see that he's absolutely right. And how imperative it is that if you don't either freaking nail it, you, you can't release it. You just can't. It's just not cool. You know, what I find really interesting then is, is with what you just mentioned, uh, I believe you initially said no to the idea of, of doing an album, uh, uh, Led Zeppelin covers. Um, but then I, I wrote this down and it said something along these lines in the bio. Uh, bio. It allowed me to get my rage out. And, uh, and I, fi- I found that uh, quote very interesting. So what, what did you mean by that? that, that when you, once well, you decided... I was, go, oh, go ahead. I, well, the last few years before I did the record, I had already started decreasing my dose of my antipsychotic that I've been on mm-hmm. for 18 years. And antipsychotics were never made to be on for longer than five weeks. Okay. They were made to only be on until lithium builds up in the system, which takes five weeks. So here I am on a drug that I know is so fucking dangerous to all your organs. But one of the most dangerous things about it is TD. And once you get tired of dyskinesia, that's it. It's permanent brain damage where the whole left side of your body can't stop shaking. So that would have ended uh, singing, playing the piano, all of it. It would have been over. And here I'm staying on this drug for all these years. So I had been weaning down. And when I was weaning down, because your system's being so used to being suppressed, it's now going to go the opposite, where it's going to go way overstimulated. So like... When I finally got off of it, not only all my psychological trauma that was being tucked down, even though I'd done therapy, I came from so much trauma as a kid that I had to be aggressive to survive my childhood. I had to be a fucking cobra to survive mm-hmm. my childhood, right? And that was what, when, that's why the music I was first doing as a young artist was so heavy rock and roll, because that was a way for me to heal. You know what I mean? So here comes all those feelings again. But then plus my body is also reacting. So like I had to go on heart medication, beta blockers, because my heart rate was 150 beats per minute at resting, just resting rate. Yeah. So even on the beta blockers, it was still 130 beats a minute. So it was insane what my body was doing, even though I had slowly over two years, just like the literature says, slowly weaned off. So here I've got all this intense stimulation plus my mom being here, Hmm. plus all the sick shit going on TV and the different leaders of the world, people dying, then people denying that there is people dying, then people fighting for equality, and then people denying that there's inequality. And it's just like, it was just so much, man, going on in my head that I had to do that record as a way to heal. And, And the thing is, is that the narrative, the lyric of Led Zeppelin music it's not, it's not angry music at all, but, but the music is, but the lyric isn't. You don't sure. see a rage in their lyrics, but the music, the vibration, the aggressiveness of it was perfect for me to funnel out screaming and being fucking using the highest part of my throat and the lowest part of my throat and power. 
so that I could feel empowered by getting mm. that shit out. So that was a blessing for me, you know? Right. The way you describe it, though, how did you kind of get yourself ready for those vocal takes? And because you wanted to do them justice, but then you have all this kind of pent up energy or, or, or rage, perhaps. Uh, how did you kind of prepare for those those vocal takes? And then what were those sessions like? Was it very intimate for you? or uh, Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I was always nervous for every time we would do a session. Uh, but Rob, the producer, and Doug, the mm -hmm. engineer, they knew me well because we had we had done a whole album together already. Sure. So that was very um, uh, comforting. And then plus, they both happened to be, you know, such pros. They worked with so many artists that they, they understand how to handle someone that is particularly self-doubting and um, uh, scared. So they knew how to handle me because I was the same way with War in My Mind. You know, it's mm -hmm. my music. And I don't want anybody to fuck it up, including myself. So getting very protective um, and, and nervous, paranoid. So here I am now doing Zeppelin and I'm just as paranoid, right? Um, but what, what helped me was I tend to way over prepare because mm -hmm. I remembered reading a book. It was the Tao Leadership. It's a, it's a Chinese uh, type of philosophy. And one of the things when I was 19, I read it and it said in order to master something, You have to study the way the very best was done to the point where you can do it. And then you have to completely let it go mm -hmm. and then do it like you're blindfolded and you've never heard it. And that's the only way to bring it home. So anytime I do anything, whether it's my songwriting and I'm preparing for an album or if I'm covering music like I did with Joe Bonamassa or with the Zeppelin thing, I study it so much where it's so embedded in my brain and then also lyrically i'll write it out over and over and over and over and over and over and i'll study every nuance and then when it's time to record then i just let it go and then usually we'll just take two or three takes and that will be it mm -hmm. and if we take more than two or three takes then that's when i start thinking more about the ego of singing instead of thinking about the only thing that matters and that's the song mm -hmm. and thankfully i've worked with great enough producers that have been around long enough to know that it's always about the song it's not about the guitar solo it's not about the singing it's not about the drum solo it's about what's best for the song so they were right on board with that um and it and and in that way it was easy but i was always nervous but we would usually do two or three songs a session uh, and then we'd take a break for like a month or two because okay. it was covid so we couldn't be in the same room sure So it was all on Zoom and I'd see uh, Doug in his studio on Zoom and then I'd see Rob in his studio on Zoom. And then my husband would set up my, I have a, a studio downstairs, not for recording, but it's just for writing. Mm -hmm. So he'd have to set it up for recording down there, like, you know, soundproof shit. And then he'd have the, the trucks would come up and he'd bring in special gear. Mm -hmm. So I'd have like a, a good, a proper mic and all those kind of things. And then that's kind of how we, We did it over the course of that uh, of, a, of a year. Okay. You mentioned all of the, the most important thing is the song. So was there one song by Zeppelin either that ended up on the album or, or didn't that had a special meaning to you or that you had a, a certain connection to? I mean, there was a lot actually that did because I wasn't aware of a lot of Zeppelin's music. The only stuff I knew was uh, um, I love the song, babe. I love the song, black dog. And then I mm -hmm. sung a whole lot of love throughout sure. the years because my band had me learn it. They said it'd be a good song for you to learn. 
so I knew that one. Um, but um, Stairway to Heaven, I didn't want to do it because it reminded me a lot of my sister, Sharon. And also I'd heard it so many times. And, you know, like karaoke or just everywhere, everywhere you go, like, it's like happy birthday. Like everybody knows that song. Like, you know, you sure. hear it so much, right? Or like I the think... Beatles, you know, stuff from the Beatles. It's like, fuck, yeah, like how many times, you know? No, I, I think Stairway to Heaven is banned in a lot of guitar stores as well. You can't play it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's it. like, yeah, exactly. It's too much, right? But when I connected it to my sister, I noticed without making the decision to do it, I made, um, it really affected me in Plant. What's so cool about Plant is he basically has three narratives. He's got his sexual narrative where, of course, he was young and wanted to get laid all the time and and there's going to be that and then he had another narrative where he talks a lot about war and the vikings and having a real interest in that mm -hmm. and then he has this other that is so fucking loving and compassionate and romantic um towards women you know and i find that in the rain song i find that in uh, especially in uh stairway to heaven Right, And so that I found to be really beautiful, very, I mean, incredible poet, uh, but no quarter was huge. I'd never heard it before. And I heard that motherfucker. And I just remember like being out in the garden, having my headphones on and I play it all day, every day. And I couldn't get enough of no quarter. No quarter was very special to me. It, it, and it was empowering. It made me think about mental illness. It made me think about, Anything that is something you have to face and have courage for, and you won't take any bullshit, not from yourself, not from anybody else. You're not going to live in a state of denial. And so I really related to that song. I didn't know John Paul Jones wrote it. It made sense to me afterwards because I, I didn't know John Paul Jones also played keyboard. Mm. I thought he was just a bass player. So the, the, the piano work on that, the keyboard work on that is so great. Um, So that was a big one. And then the crunch, I didn't like it at all because A, I didn't get it. And B, I was like, I don't have the talent to sing this. I'm trying like hell. I don't, I can't do it. I cannot do this song. And I, that was the hardest one by far, man, to do. And then it wasn't until I said to my husband, dude, I wonder if this is like an homage to James Brown. So we went on Google and we discovered that it was. They were giving an homage to James Brown. So once, once I found that out and then Rob said to me, he didn't know that, but Rob said to me, it's actually really cool. And if you learn it, you're going to get, it's going to affect you as an artist. So learn it. It's, it's pretty brilliant because there's so many time signature changes. It's never repeating. It's almost like jazz soul acid rock. It's this mm. trippy thing that Zeppelin has nothing else like it. And I've never heard anyone else do anything like it except James Brown. And that's where I went, fuck, yeah, I'm going to I don't care how much humbling this is for me, how hard it is. Even if at the end of the day, Rob said, sorry, you didn't pull it off. I'm going to do everything I can to try and do it. And I had so many different ways of approaching it, even to the point of where it didn't even sound like the song anymore. Mm -hmm. So I had to, like, go down so many rabbit holes to finally go, all right. Let's just freaking learn what he did and then rhythmically think of if James was doing it and let that be your inspiration. 
And and yeah, that's how finally. And then Rob, it was the, it was funny. I'd recorded it several times, sucked. And then finally, during the mixing period, Rob had me do it again at his place. Once the COVID restrictions left, I went down to a studio and I did it one night. And even then, after a year listening to it and singing it, um, I'm out in my car waiting for the time to walk into his studio and I'm out in my car listening and singing along to it again and just like praying and like looking at the lyric again. And, and it was just like mind boggling, like trying to do a Rubik's Cube. It was just insane. So challenging. With everything that you mentioned now, what was the feeling then once it was once it was finished and it was kind of out of your control then? Was that relieving or was that even more worrying? Um, it never was really worrying once I get past a take. Okay. So once I finished a couple of takes, you know, Rob and Doug are very honest. So they're, mm. they're not going to suck my dick, but they're also <laughs> not brutal. And they would say, boom, you got it. Good job. Let's move on. So when that would happen, then I would literally let go at that moment. Um, but I'd also let go even before I'd sing it. So there was a part of me that was worried, but then there was a part of me, maybe because I'm older and I've been around a while, that I knew I had to. I just had to let it go. It is what it is. I'm right. either going to do this or I'm not going to do it. Right. Um, but when he finally played us the mixes, the first thing he asked me, what do you want to hear? And I said, well, I want to hear whatever you want me to hear. You know, I want to hear what gets you the most excited. But he already knew that my favorite song that I'd sung was babe. I'm going to leave you because anything about abandonment, I always have an especial connection, a, a real intense connection to, because that's sure. the basis of my mental illness is, is abandoning others or being abandoned by others. So that song in particular, and he uh, played that first and I fell on my knees. You know, I tend to be way overly dramatic anyway, but I did, a, I fell on my knees and, and I grabbed onto his knee and I just gave him a kiss and I cried and said, thank you. Thank you so much for this. It's even going to choke me up now talking about it, but, oh, but, that's but great. Yeah. yeah, he's <coughs> the best man. Yeah, that's even he's the best. So, so this <sighs> is this is maybe a, a question out of left field then, but it, because of the, I, I believe the way it went is uh, Rob kind of suggested to you to do this album, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, so if let's say in a year he comes to you with a different artist, uh, the, the the who or whoever, um, who would you like to? Uh, do, do you have an artist in mind that you can see yourself doing an album uh, uh, full of their songs? Is real music dying? What even is real music and who are we to judge that? Well, my father is a lifelong musician and together we've been making music for over a decade. In our new podcast, we dare to ask the urgent, the weird and the deep questions. And we have a lot of wild stories to tell. No matter what genres you enjoy, whether you're a musician, a producer or a listener, we invite you to discover unconventional perspectives on music. So tune in and go follow Mad Makings of Music wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, yeah, Leonard Cohen's one. I've always been the biggest fan of Leonard Cohen. I think his work is just the most marvelous poetry I've ever heard. And then the different producers he's worked with, but 
particularly the producer he had been working with in the last handful of years, who's been around forever, worked with everyone of different genres. Um, I can't remember his name right now, which is freaking stupid. Sorry, but he's a pretty brilliant guy. Um, uh, Leonard Cohen, I just love Tom Waits, mm-hmm. adore um, Billy Holiday. Mm-hmm. I loved uh, I loved everything Billy Holiday did. I would love to take that on. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different things. There's a lot of different genres and different artists that I love. You know, like uh, Steel Pulse is like my favorite sure. of all the reggae. I, I love Bob Marley, but Steel Pulse, fucking dude. So I would love to take on some of that, like stepping out. And I mean, you know, it goes on forever. And there's so many great roller skates. So, yeah, that'd be cool. Les Claypool. I really mm-hmm. loved Primus, um, particularly Sailing the, the uh, se- sailing Seven Seas of Cheese or Sailing the Seas of Cheese. That one album. That was great. Uh, Rammstein. Fucking <laughs> love Rammstein. Can't get enough. But I'm not strong enough to sing Sepultura. And mm. Sepultura and Pantera are two of my favorite hard rock bands. But I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a female. I'm only so strong vocally. So I, I couldn't take Sepultura on. But if I die and get to come back, <laughs> it's like being reincarnated. I want to be green from freaking Cleveland who replaced the original singer of Sepultura. That dude is fucking unbelievable man and then the butcher from rammstein you know he's so incredible <laughs> yeah uh, all amazing choices i think um <laughs> and, and it, it is it is interesting as you say that but it has to fit your voice right but well but kind of to to round off here what's also important i suppose is your own work and then now i read that uh, in the past couple of years you also did a lot of writing uh, in terms of your own music so what have you noticed about what you were writing the last two years and we met, we've talked a little bit about that rage and it, is that something that went into that as well yeah so i noticed that um i i'd already gone down jazz i started going down jazz lane uh, about eight years ago mm-hmm. so i noticed that my jazz chops in terms of uh, a chord chords and progressions and time signatures had improved. So I wrote a lot of jazz stuff, but I also think I did that as a way to kind of honor my mother who comes from that era and that made her feel comfortable. Um, And then some storytelling stuff, which I've normally done throughout the years anyway, that kind of Americana storytelling, but I got more into kind of Leonard Cohen, Tom Waits, um, sense of humor mixed with really dark, So like mm. saying a horrible, tragic line and then following it with a sense of humor and then musically doing stuff like that. But what I really noticed was classical music meeting kind of a Nina Simone vocal take on it. Mm. So I've got a lot of that going on. And then something odd happened when I, I've got an old co-writer friend of mine named Rune but I've done a lot of writing with throughout the years since I was like 32 is when I met him. And he was flipping out too, because he's used to writing constantly with other writers as well as with me. And, you know, all that ended. So when he and I got together, we did this thing where we started taking kind of like hip hop and mixing it with hard rock and then doing like the black keys and then raw, raw with that. Okay. And like mixing that up into a thing. 
and that and then like really old blues like like robert johnson mm. early the earliest blues right and kind of mixing that and that was a weird thing for us and and instead of us like you know trying to reiterate what we've already done we had no interest in that you know we we would just we're gonna take off from wherever we felt and we kind of fell into that and also production wise because whenever the days we write we always get the production done that day okay and so like fiddling with that and being way more um open to uh experimenting and things like that and so that was a lot of fun so you know there's a like usual with my records they're eclectic anyway they tend to be most of them but but this more so so when i go to turn this stuff in it's going to be really interesting to see what rob says like he always says like what type of record do you want to do and i i always say well definitely eclectic i don't want it to be like the same song over and over in a different key i don't want to do that i have no interest in that but um this one probably even more so or less so and and i don't know yet because there's so many songs and it's going to just be interesting to see what rob gravitates to i have a lot of respect when i work with a producer to where I just turn shit in and say, I don't give a shit what you choose because everything I'm turning into you, I love. The only thing I give a shit about is, you know, how we go about, you know, being careful with the arrangements. Cause when I write, I'm really fickle about arranging. That's mm. important to me. So that kind of thing. And then, but then I let go too. So there's a control factor of when we have the meeting and we go over the notes, but then once we get in, I'm out of there. I let it go. I don't go into the control room and listen to the vocal playback or the piano playback. I don't do any of that. I go outside and relax and I stay out of it. And the only time I come back in is when it's during mixing time. Cause that's like a secondary writing time. Sure. That's when you start muting things or things that you missed, you can add to the keyboard or vocal parts. You can, you know, and things you can add or take away. So, so that's the only time I get re re back, you know, reinvested in it. Otherwise, once we go in the studio and record, I'm out. I'm just singing and playing, and, and then I'm out of there. I'm not involved. But it sounds like you're in a really great creative uh, space at the moment, so, so that's good to hear. Yeah, that, that was cool about um, Pandemic in that it, at first I was writing a lot, and then I realized I was just really manic, and everything I thought that I was writing was so genius, and then I realized <laughs> it was absolute shit. So I stopped writing completely and then got really manic in the garden. And then when I finally relaxed, then I went back to writing and that's when it, it was much more creative and focused and not just this grandiosity of, Oh my God, I'm a genius. And I'm, you know, full blown mania and smoking and all that kind of crap, you know? But I suppose so, you have to get those songs out, right? You have to purge the kind of some of those bad ideas, quote unquote, yeah. to, to kind of get to the good ones. Right. Totally. I mean, at least for me, yeah, absolutely. Be willing to suck and <laughs> write terrible shit. And eventually you'll get and uncover some good stuff, but work for it. Like, like I'll compare it again to the garden. When I first started gardening, everything I planted died, everything. And then I learned, you know what I mean? Take it easy, go slower, you know, listen, go online, follow some freaking rules and then you'll get there. You know, don't just think that you know it and because you want it this way, that that's how it's going to be. That's all ego. And the ego just fucks up the work every time. Right. So, yeah, that was a good thing about pandemic, too. It just wiped out that ego. 
That was great to hear. Like, like the old saying goes, patience is virtue, and it turns out to be true as well. It's true, but sometimes we have to be forced to be patient, you know what I mean? <laughs> Fair enough, yes. Um, Beth, may I thank you as always for your time. It's always a, a huge pleasure to talk to you. Oh, man, it's such a good time talking to you, man. And I miss the Netherlands so much, man. And I'm so yeah, glad number one, here. right? Oh, fucking A, man. That's pretty freaking rad. <laughs> I miss you guys. So you know what I miss the most, man? Back in the day when I only had three countries to tour. Remember? Because I fucked up my whole career with my <laughs> drugs and shit. Nobody wanted me around. And there were only three countries that would have me. And that was New Zealand, Holland, and Denmark. And all I would do was play Holland all year. And now I only get to go into Holland and play like one or two shows. And, and then I do like a festival, but I know that country so well. I've been to every single city in Holland and played. And I miss that. I miss those days. You know, well, we're very lucky to have you as much as we, we have over the past and we'll, we'll enjoy, uh, see you come play for us, uh, in the future as well. So Beth, thank you so much. Thank you so much, man. Bless your heart, man. Love you guys. Send out some love for me, okay? <laughs>